Welcome to the podcast version of Sunday Miscellany, which differs from the radio version for rights reasons. We hope you enjoy the program. Pictures open the trap doors of our mind. And so it was a few months ago when a post on my old Alma Mater's Facebook page reeled in the ears to when youth was ours and everything chimed to the beat of the football drum. Hill 16 way before health and safety. With the crowd swaying back and forth to the game's ebb and flow like Sharon Shannon's concertina in full flow. The street traders hawking paper mache hats and more that evaporated when the rains came. But it was the way they said it. Get yours as hats, flags and rosettes! as that Moore Street mantra went on location to Jones's Road. The platform shoes, the flares, the long locks and the banners that celebrated a group of men that changed the sporting landscape and reclaimed the city for the GAA. Elvis is gone but the dubs live on, said one held high on the hill in August 77 just days after the great man left the building, as the dubs beat Kerry once more. The Jacks are back, was the new frontier speech, sewn into the canvas of another flag in 74, when everyone was part of Hefo's army as the dubs came in from the cold to win the All-Ireland. The Facebook photos brought it all back to one of those special occasions when Sam Maguire made the short journey from Croke Park to my school, Kalosh to Wirra on Parnell Square. Kids running amok in the yard and then clambering up the stairs to Arklan on Kaloshta, the pride and joy of the school that was the brainchild of Abbey Theatre director Thomas McConaugh. It was to get the best seats for the parade of past pupils that helped the Dubs win another All-Ireland. The county board chairman, Jimmy Gray, was there. So too was cornerback Robbie Kelleher. But Big Brian Mullins was the man. The fair-haired boy, but midfield behemoth of the Dublin team and the rock on which everything that was achieved in the 1970s and 80s was built. Our hero, a Kalosh to Wirra man. Big-hearted, belligerent, and to every one of a blue hue, he was to dubs in Croke Park what Kratos on Mount Olympus was to the Greeks. The divine personification of strength, who took the fight to Kerry. And there he was before us in a great coat that was more rock and roll than Gaelic games. But his attire was entirely appropriate because he was rock and roll. And he was ours. We cheered his every word as as he tried to inspire the next generation. He was Dublin. Even half a dub like me raised in a Kerry house knew when oscillating between supporting the kingdom and the capital depended on how the wind was blowing. 
I'd cycle up to UCD to see the Kerry players who were based in Dublin being trained by my uncle Michal. But as I went, I'd make sure to wear Dublin blue. Once I gave the great Jack O'Shea my bike so he could train by cycling around the campus instead of putting weight on his dodgy Achilles tendon. In my own mind, I was vital to Kerry's All-Ireland effort. But whenever Brian came to school with Sam Maguire, I was back to being a true blue. I had to be. That's why when news came through of his terminal illness last year, it was like a death in the family. Because he was family to a generation that set their clocks by days of thunder on a heaving Hill 16. I was in Carron in County Clare, sitting outside the small thatched cottage where Michael Cusack was born. At a ceremony to mark the 175th anniversary of the birth of the GAA's founder. A friend of mine from Six Mile Bridge, Tim Crow, who was a classmate of Brian's in the first ever PE class in Thomond College 50 years previously, broke the news. Brian was their hero too. Cusack was hewn from the rocky landscape of the Burren. Brian's Clare father was born on the edge of the Burren and Kerry mother just a few fields away from my father's home place outside Dingle. It was men like Brian that Cusack had in mind when he drafted rules to create the game of Gaelic football. He was everything he'd want in a footballer, just like Brian's uncle Billy Casey was when winning All-Irelands with Kerry. It's why all dubs will remember him this Sunday, as they go for another glory day in front of the hill. All because, more than anyone else, the force of his personality on the football field bent matches to Dublin's will, made the hill dance and made their dreams come true. A monstrous roar from the crowd. But it's not for a goal or a save or the final whistle. It's a roar as a player in isolation runs on to Croke Park. All-Ireland Football Final Day 1969. The team's Kerry and Offaly. The player is the famous Mick O'Connell. My father and I stood on the old Canal Terrace. A Kerry man living in Dublin, he'd brought me up to support Kerry from the time I got out of the pram. I attended my first final in 1955, age seven, Kerry beating Dublin in an iconic match. A couple of years later, a superstar emerged, Mick O'Connell. He had the grace of a ballet dancer as he soared into the sky to catch the ball. No ball was wasted, his distribution impeccable, his free-taking accurate. A mystique surrounded him, 
He lived on Valencia Island, rowed to and from the island for training and matches, shunned publicity, gave no interviews. He had won two All-Ireland medals, but overall the 1960s was a frustrating decade for Kerry, four finals lost. In 1969, O'Connell was having his best year, Steele now added to style. Kerry won the league, O'Connell starring in the final in New York, and back home qualified for the All-Ireland final against Offaly. But in the days before that final, dramatic news from the Kingdom hit the headlines. Mick O'Connell was doubtful. He was injured and hadn't been training with the team in Killarney. A sense of terror and dread entered the heart of every Kerry supporter. How could Offaly be faced without O'Connell? In Dublin, we had no news. Kerry relatives, up for the match, had no news. The newspapers and radio had no news. We went to the match with no news. We watched the minor game from our usual position on the canal terrace. Then Offaly ran onto the field to the acclamation of their supporters. Next, the Kerry team from the old dressing room under the Cusick stand nearest the canal. Cheers and more cheers, but eyes anxiously scanned the players in their unfamiliar blue jerseys. No sign of Mick O'Connell. A sense of despair. Then, after a delay, maybe 30 seconds, Maybe a minute after the other players, a figure emerged from the tunnel leading to the dressing room. It looked like O'Connell. It was O'Connell. Then the roar started, like a volcano erupting around the stadium. O'Connell would play. The roar continued, reverberating around the packed stands and terraces. It happened over 50 years ago, but I can still hear the roar which greeted Mick O'Connell as he ran onto the field for the All-Ireland Final of 1969. Kerry won a low-scoring, hard-fought match. Mick O'Connell had a quiet game. But in the second half, he converted two long-distance frees when the game was in the balance. Kerry had finally come of age with 21 All-Irelands. Mick probably went straight back to Valencia after the game. The roar of the crowd in Croke Park. The silence of the island. The contrast. I'm perusing the impressive but overwhelming display of fish in the Galway market. The man beside me is equally indecisive on what to select. From a side glance he has a tan complexion and wearing a black shirt. As I look more closely at his face I'm immediately starstruck. It's someone I've always wanted to talk to. I'm distracted from the purpose of my visit and as he moves to another section I think I've missed my chance to talk to this man. Fortunately, we meet again at the checkout. Excuse me, I say. Yes, he replies. Pat, is it? I follow. Yes, he repeats. I ask him if he would afford me a few minutes to talk about his work, which he graciously agrees to, 
even asking a neighbour to wait a few minutes as he finished the conversation. The name Pat Comer may not be immediately recognisable to you unless you were a Galway football follower from the 1980s to the 90s, when it was he who kept goal for the tribesmen. Pat combined this distinction with his professional calling as a filmmaker to create a remarkable piece of art, a fly-on-the-wall documentary film depicting humanity at its rawest, and a piece that may well be viewed by some of the participants in the build-up to this year's All-Ireland Final. It's exactly a quarter of a century since myself and other patient Galway football fans experienced sensory overload as we journeyed over four months following the team to reach the holy grail of Sam Maguire glory after a 32-year wait. Today, that team line out in Croke Park, but this time without their boots, as they are guests of honour for the pre-match Jubilee presentation. Pat's interest in telling stories through pictures, as he put it, resulted in the production of the Insider documentary A Year Till Sunday and chronicles this Galway team's journey from wet winter training nights to September jubilation. The idea had been germinating with Pat from the previous year. Long-time teammate and manager Val Daly granted him permission to record behind-closed-doors footage. However, a first-round loss to Mayo cut the idea short. New manager John O'Mahony retained Pat on the panel as a sub-goalie for the 1998 campaign, but Pat, being less familiar with John's personality, was unsure if his behind-the-scenes idea would find favour and so decided to go down the subtle route of recording activities through a concealed camera underneath a towel. It was only the morning of the first-round championship encounter with Mayo that selector Stephen Joyce humorously remarked, I hope that's a lucky camera, Pat. Pat then knew his efforts to evade management attention had failed, but luckily the idea was embraced and so Pat was afforded more freedom in his recording. The project gained momentum as the journey continued, with Pat capturing the emotions and actions of players and management in the dressing room and training fields. Individual pre-match rituals, visceral speeches, candid conversations, recriminations after poor performances, the ecstasy of winning, and the heartbreak of players being informed of their exclusion from the 24-man All-Ireland panel. All make gripping viewing. Clever editing, using sound overlays of football cogs and coughs over some profanities, reduced the censorship rating to reach a wider and younger audience. The unscripted footage was not restricted to the player management cohort. It also captured the reactions of the fans throughout the journey. Chats at the high stool, unnerving discomfort as games reached their tense finale, and jubilation afterwards. An energetic, gyrating man sang the Hucklebook outside a house after the Connacht final victory in Roscommon. There was joyful mayhem as the Saw Doctors played their song Hey Rap at the concert on College Green the night before the All-Ireland. In a brilliant ten-minute segment towards the end of the production, video highlights of the All-Ireland final are combined with perfectly synchronised radio commentary from the great Mihal Amurhurtig, interspersed with footage of live reactions to critical match plays by supporters at the game and in several pubs. Having the remarkable foresight, bravery and determination to capture all this footage was, in itself, a huge achievement. But perhaps even more astonishing was the fact that the film was edited and produced as a VHS 
well before the Christmas period of that year. DVDs of it are still for sale, and you can also find it on YouTube. I know I'm biased, but it's hard to argue against a year till Sunday's entertainment value and classic status. It captures human beings in all our imperfection, experiencing all sorts of spontaneous emotion in the crucible of sport. The forgiving nature of today's championship format for teams has diluted the intrigue of the earlier stage games that in 1998 packed out provincial grounds with colour and characters of all ages. This coupled with today's meticulous managerial protection of players and the sacrosanct dressing room mean that an emulation of a year till Sunday is extremely unlikely in the future. Unless, of course, one of the players is also a filmmaker. Mahu of Hodrick. Mahu. We head for the hills, my sister and I. She's home for a short visit from the capital. Not long after dawn, climbing to the top of Knucknoir, she pauses and takes a deep breath, scanning the familiar shoreline of the River Shannon to the north, the Atlantic Ocean to the west, the flat and fertile plains stretching east all the way to the river field, and Kerry Head, away to the south. We know the ridges of this landscape, identify with it, in all its moods. We know it because our father knew it, and he insisted we listen, as he told the stories of these fields. We feel him in the air around us now, and we sense, too, the high excitement and deadly tension that has been building here in the kingdom as Kerry prepares to take on Dublin. An ardent follower of his county team, our father passed away unexpectedly in his fifties, more than three decades ago. Sitting together on tufts of heathery grass, my sister and I reminisce. She reminds me of our teenage years, how animated our dad would become as all Ireland Sunday approached. Ah, those dubs are made of tough stuff, father would declare, as he wrapped an old green and gold ribbon, saved from his own childhood days, around his brown tweed hat. If his beloved Kerry were in the final games, he would tie a long wooden pole to the pillar by our gate at the edge of the village on the N69, from there, his green and gold Kerry flag billowed out, almost touching the passing Kerry cars as they curled their way out of the county, bound for Dublin and Croke Park. Sure our boys will give the dubs a right good game of it, he'd say. Born footballers. 
"'tis how they won't be found wanting, "'up until that final whistle sounds. "'There was always a sort of afterglow "'when Dad talked about the Kerry-Dublin rivalry. "'My sister married a dub, "'met him at set-dancing class in Rathmines, "'around the house and mine the dresser. "'Marriage and children combined to settle her in Dublin.' With little mercy, the teasing from her beloved is constant when it comes to the fortunes of their respective Kerry and Dublin footballing heroes. Ah yes, yes, know the score. Kerry for the Holliers and Dublin for Sam. That's his mantra. As a stiff North Kerry wind rises, coming in from the sea, there's a taste of salt in the air. It blows her auburn hair across her face but I can see her eyes are dancing. She tells me how her teenage kids have hung an enormous navy and sky blue flag from an upstairs bedroom window in their family home. How her flag, smaller, a white trim of green and gold, is draped from the other upstairs window. Lively, they flutter side by side against the red bricked wall. Kerry and Dublin first played each other in 1892, and they have done so many times since. Widely agreed to be among the greatest of GAA rivalries, this eagerly anticipated game will be another compelling classic. The streets will be chock-a-block, Sam Maguire will be polished and ready, the pubs will be decked out in bunting, and once more we will fall under the spell of Dublin versus Kerry. We are in the waiting room and about to witness another elemental battle between mighty sportsmen, mighty teams. As soaring and swooping seagulls rise above the hollering crowds of Croke Park, the flags will help to convey and preserve our identity, inspiring loyalty, rallying the troops. Rival fans will gather. Who will know the ecstasy of victory? Hill 16, the Nally, the Davin, the Cusack and the Hogan stands will fill. Hearts will be thumping. My sister knows that she has stood her ground. Bright-eyed, she has hung her flag. It's still rippling, side by side. Navy and sky blue, green and gold. Anything could happen. Sure, isn't it anyone's game? Can you hear him? My sister asks me. Sure, isn't it anyone's game? Up until that final whistle sounds.
from the time that I was old enough to leave the house, my dad brought me to football and hurling matches. In 1967, when I was eight, Dad trained the Cork team that reached the All-Ireland football final. I watched it on our black and white television at home and was heartbroken when Cork was defeated by Meath. After a short break, Dad was back as Cork trainer in 1972. By then, I was old enough to go to the training sessions. My chief job was retrieving footballs from behind the goals. The year ended abruptly when Kerry beat Cork in the Munster final. The next year, 1973, began with most people expecting Cork to be beaten by Kerry in the Munster final again, but that was not what happened. Cork scored five goals in the first 25 minutes of the game and, try as they might, Kerry just could not catch up. I watched the game sitting with the substitutes. I enjoyed my day no end, the envy of all my friends. I sat with the substitutes again for the All-Ireland semi-final when Cork defeated Tyrone. Cork scored another five goals that day and qualified to play Galway in the All-Ireland final. In 1973, Cork had not won the All-Ireland football title for 28 years, but after scoring 10 goals in two games, the general feeling was that Cork's hour had come and nobody wanted to miss it. In the weeks leading up to the final, my dad's role as trainer made me a minor celebrity at school. Are you going to training tonight? I'd be asked. Of course I am, I'd reply, trying to give the impression that I was a vital part of the team. Eventually, All-Ireland final day arrived. I travelled to Dublin on the train with my mother. She'd be in the Cusick stand. I would be below her in the dugout. I travelled in the team bus to Croke Park and in the dressing room I tried to make myself invisible. John Kid Cronin, the team masseur, was busy and the smell of wintergreen filled the room. My father moved from player to player, adjusting his tone according to what he felt each player needed. The murmur of conversation broken only by the staccato sound of balls hopping off the floor or punched against the wall. As match time approached, Captain Billy Morgan gave a rousing speech. Dad followed this with his final instructions. As usual with him, every word was carefully chosen to finely tune the mind and heart of each player. The team left the dressing room determined to end a 28-year wait for the All-Ireland Football Championship title. I took my seat in the dugout, sitting next to Billy Field, who had broken his leg in the semi-final. He ended the championship as Cork's top scorer, but was forced to look on at the final, still in plaster, pondering what might have been. My memories of the game have melted into a sea of undulating emotions. There were highs when Jimmy Barry Murphy scored a goal after four minutes, then lows and dreadful tension when Galway scored a goal in the second half and looked like taking control. Then a great high again when Jimmy Barry Murphy scored another brilliant goal. With that goal, the tension that had filled the dugout all afternoon vanished, replaced by an air of victory as the end of the game approached. Teddy O'Brien, one of the substitutes, started singing, We're a great old team to play for. Others shook hands. When Jimmy Barrett scored Cork's third goal, the crowd on Hill 16 could hold back no longer. They charged the field. The referee blew the full-time whistle. Cork were All-Ireland champions. I stayed in the dugout and watched the mayhem develop on the field. As the presentation began, 
I headed to the dressing room, even though it had already been agreed I would meet my mother immediately after the game. My dad was there. He had discarded his splendid red tracksuit and was changing into his clothes. Compared to the bedlam outside, the atmosphere was calm. Dad was not showing much emotion and I was unsure how to react. I said to him, well done, that was brilliant. It was, he said, and we spoke about the game and its highlights. His job was done. Inevitably, the dressing room began filling up. There were reporters, cameramen, county board officials and members of the players' family. Soon the players began to arrive and there was hugging and cheering. As the noise got louder, I stood on a seat in the far corner of the dressing room to get a bird's eye view of what was happening. Eventually the door burst open and Billy Morgan charged in holding the Sam Maguire cup and shouting, Where is he? Where's Donny? Billy charged towards my dad, now fully dressed, and the two embraced. Seeing my dad share that moment with Billy Morgan, I realised that Donny O'Donovan was not just my dad. He was also a person with his own hopes and dreams that he had nurtured since he was a boy. Fifty years on from that All-Ireland final, as I carved my own imperfect path through life, I realise how lucky I was as his son to witness such a moment of fulfilment. In the days and weeks after the final, I basked in my dad's reflected glory. Even today, people still ask me, are you the son of Donny O'Donovan who trained Cork to win the All-Ireland football title in 1973? And I will always proudly answer, yes I am. On this morning's programme, we heard Our Fair-Haired Behemoth by Joe O'Mearhertig The Roar was by Brendan O'Sullivan Pat's Prescience by Pat Cunningham Up Until That Final Whistle Sounds was by Mary Lavery Carrick And Cork's All-Ireland Football Win of 1973 A Personal Memory by Dermot O'Donovan The music was the likes of Heffo's Army, written by Mick Swan and Barra Doyle, and performed by The Memories, featuring the voice of commentator Michal O'Hare. Purtnabukui, performed by Murin Nikauliv. Hey Rap, by The Saw Doctors. And O Roche de Vahavaila, by the late Sinead O'Connor, and we play that in tribute to her. This morning's programme was produced by Lorcan Clancy. The broadcast coordinator is Elaine Conlon and the series producer of Sunday Miscellany is Sarah Binchy. For more from Sunday Miscellany and other arts and culture programmes, see rte.ie forward slash culture. And to listen back to this morning's programme, go to the RTE radio app or the programme website rte.ie forward slash radio one forward slash Sunday hyphen miscellany. You've been listening to the Sunday Miscellany podcast. For more from us, you can follow the programme on Facebook, Twitter, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Just search for RTE Sunday Miscellany.